Hello, I'm Yanis Varoufakis. I'm at Novara Media, and I have a message for you. The best way of uh, underpinning any kind of potential resistance to a very toxic establishment without being populist anti-establishment and by supporting good, rational, humanist causes is to support left-wing media like Novara Media. Novara Media and all such media need your support because they certainly do not have the support of the establishment. Cape diem. You might recognize this. It's a mobile phone. Originally, we used these to call people on the move. You might not remember that, I certainly do. Then we could check our emails, post things on social media, take photos. More recently still, we could use them to pay for things. You didn't need cash, you could just have a mobile phone. Now, some people say that this has crept up on us without us really scrutinizing what that means, that it's part of a broader shift to a cashless society and the first step towards a kind of authoritarianism we're yet to fully comprehend. Now, some of the critics of the move to a cashless society have been called conspiracy theorists, and some of them are. But there are also voices who say that we should be more judicious about this technology, that in fact, there are major downsides if we renounce cash. We give too much power to government, to big corporations, and to big tech. And that's the argument made by today's guest, Brett Scott. Brett is an author, a former banker, and somebody who knows all about digital currencies, from Bitcoin to Britcoin and everything in between. Brett, welcome to Downstream. So good to be here. We are talking about a super interesting topic today. We are. Money, the future of money, cloud money, which is the topic, the name of your book, mm -hmm. rather. Before we do, though, I want to establish your credentials in the field. Oof. You were in finance. So tell me a little bit about your finance career, how that started, and the kinds of broader conditions that were prevailing at the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, it's been a while back now. So I actually joined the financial sector right as the financial crisis took off heavily. So I actually got my first financial job two weeks before Lehman Brothers went down. Um, but basically, the, what, if you want the, sort of the, the, the story behind it, I'd actually been trained in international development and anthropology. And the, sort of the trajectory that I was sort of technically supposed to go down was to go into sort of, you know, working on, you know, uh, sort of humanitarian, the kind of stuff that international development professionals do. But I actually became very fascinated by, you know, what are the dynamics of the actual, you know, the, the financial sector, these sort of, you know, massive, massive you know, the, in the centers of power. And I became very darkly intrigued by it. So I thought, hey, let me go to London and sort of get a, do an adventure, as it were, like experience that, that, that system. And so that's why I ended up in London in 2008, trying to get into the financial sector. Uh, what university did you study at? I was at Cambridge for, uh, that was the last university I was at, but I studied in South Africa originally. That's fascinating because we've had Gary Stevenson on, yeah. who um, we did a great interview with him. And I think he started in finance, very similar, like that summer, and uh, yeah, he, yeah. he was at the LSE. So it's interesting. You've got these two well, the interesting thing, interesting in, voices in, coming out in of that the, experience. In the elite universities, they push it very, very heavily. So I'd come from South Africa. One of the interesting things I arrived in Cambridge for the, my masters, and I had all the Goldman Sachs was there, and they were trying to like they they try to harvest the students, right? 
Um, and so I was like, wow, I've never experienced anything like this in South Africa. I've never seen these players, right? Because this is where they hang out in London and in the UK. And so that's where I started to become, I started to think a lot more about finance through that exposure. And I was like, wow, all these, all the students are being sucked into these big firms. Like what's going on here? So that's, that's where the original kind of thing started. And then I have this anthropology background. So I kind of became interested in using my anthropological eye, as it were, to experience these systems of power, which in anthropology circles, they're sometimes called up, upward anthropology, where you go into a community that's more powerful than maybe your background, as opposed to traditional anthropology, where you're sort of heading off to sort of parts of the world that are traditionally during the colonial times much poorer. So that's that's the kind of the tradition I was coming from. So Cambridge, uh, then you had an interview with Lehman. Yeah. Almost almost around- Two interviews actually. Two interviews. Yeah. And, and obviously Lehman collapses, what, August 2008? September 2008? September, I think, yeah. So when was your interview? I mean, I guess it must have been early August, late July, something like that. Wow. I, I forget exactly. But it was the funny, the funniest thing about it. It was like in the- I guess like, I don't know, the 50th floor, the 35th floor of the, the, the Canary Wolf offices. And these two guys, these like vice presidents, I think. And they were like, you might've seen these stories in the press about, you know, what's, what's uh, you know, scaremongering stories about Lehman, but everything's totally fine. Don't worry about those. And then weeks later, they were gone. Never so, trust an investment banker. Yeah, and I actually feel sorry for the guy who got the job. You know, whoever got the job would have arrived at work and been fired immediately. Yeah, <laughs> he would have like, but he probably hadn't even got his box through the door before taking it back <laughs> yeah, out exactly. again. Yeah. So your book is about the future of money. There's been a huge conversation really in the last six months around digital money. Yeah. The move to a cashless society that can often be quite prone to conspiratorial thinking. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about all of that. We'll touch on all of that. But first, what is money? Can you give me a definition, please, of this thing that we will take for granted, but which we rarely think about? Maybe, maybe a high-level definition would be a system of access tokens um, embedded into a network of relationships. Right? That's probably a very obscure thing to say to most people. Most people think of money as a thing. In reality, you're talking about a systemic structure mediated via, via tokens that offer, in a sense, access to human labor. All right? So um, the, the complexity with the monetary system is that actually there are these particular issues of, the, of that those tokens. And those tokens that we currently call money are actually from a sort of structural, sort of like a legal perspective, they're credit instruments, what you might call an IOU, right? Um, but those are what we use as the sort of raw material to form uh, this like system of access tokens. So you might, might think about, um, if, you, if you think about, you know, if you're a person who's trying to get into an economy, right? You're trying to essentially, you have a huge interdependent network of people that you depend upon they don't necessarily depend upon you. So when you're getting a job, you're trying to enter into this interdependent network, trying to get the ability to command other people. And the monetary system is the thing that holds that whole structure together. All right, and this is, um, you know, the part of the core of capitalist economies. Basically, you cannot have capitalism without monetary systems. So th there's multiple layers of money, right? So we have cash. Yeah. We have, which is in our hands, but obviously this is a, a tiny fraction of the overall money supply. Yeah. Can you talk about the differences between these kinds of money, who issues them, where they come yeah, from? Yeah, sure. Um, so the actual issuance elements of money, there's at least three layers of issuance, right? So most people, if you ask them, you know, where does money come from? They, they sort of think it's the state, like the central bank. That's a comparatively small part of the monetary money supply. But if you speak to a central banker, for example, they'll say that the that part of the monetary system anchors the rest. So I think this is anchoring role. 
Um, so you might think of the sort of first layer of money being issued out by states um, via central banks and treasuries. And that's, that's the, you know, in the, in the public realm, that's when you see cash, that's a sort of layer one form of money, all right? But then there's these second layer. The, so the second layer is the banking sector. So when you're, you know, the best way to kind of grasp this is to, I, I use this metaphor of a casino to help people understand this, right? So if you rock up at a casino and you hand over cash to the, to the cashier, they push out these chips to you, right? And those chips are a second tier form of money that's privately issued, but it's connected back to that first form of money, right? So they've taken the sort of layer one money from you and pushed out the second layer. And then you can use that privately issued form. And actually your bank, the units in the bank account are exactly the same. They're a kind of privately issued secondary form of money. You might think of them as being digital casino chips. Um, a cashless society would be a society where you had to rely upon these sort of privately issued digital casino chips. Um, and that's what you're using when you tap your contactless card. You're basically using these privately issued bank chips. Um, and then you can build third layers on top of that. You know, PayPal, for example, takes those that second layer of money and pushes out a third layer. And actually, there's in any monetary system, there's literally thousands of issuers who are chained together. So sometimes tens of thousands of issuers, actually. But the sort of the core issuer is in the middle, which is the, the state. So a bit of history. We have the disadoption of the gold standard by the United States, 1971. Until then, you have a metallic reserve for the dollar, which... Mm -hmm. Almost all the world's currencies were were linked in some way to prior to the United States. You have it with Great Britain, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a metallic standard for currencies for a really long time. This ends in 1971. You're talking about private issuance of what are effectively casino chips. Mm. How does that relate to what changes in 1971 with a move away from the, the gold standard? Because, of course, before then, there was this independent measure of value yeah. to which... Wow, you want to, you want to open this? Topic. National currencies were linked to. Well, I just want to know in terms of how new yeah, okay. how so, new is all of this? Basically? Really, like it depends on what what sort of school of monetary thought you're coming from, really. So, um, it's probably also a bit beyond a single conversation about this. But typically, historically, there's two broad paradigms of thinking about money, and sometimes called commodity and credit theories, right? Or chartalism is the sort of most well known version of the of the latter. Um, in the sort of the commodity way of thinking about money is the most common by far. Actually, almost the vast majority of the public, when they're thinking about money, imagine it as like a kind of a thing. All right. And there will be a sort of a historical account where they say, in the past, it was a kind of a real thing, but it's somehow become a kind of fictitious thing now, but we somehow project value into it. It's a bit like the sort of almost like a Peter Pan idea. Like it's like as long as you believe hard enough, this thing will keep on having value. Right, you know, and so that's that's a, a very like classic commodity way of thinking. And within that, gold features heavily in the imagination because it's imagined as a sort of the original, almost like a platonic ideal of money. Right, so you'll have people giving these accounts saying once money was real, but then we had to sort of rely upon you know fiat and stuff. In reality, if you look at the history of gold, it's way more complex than this. Actually, lots of how gold operates is actually has these sort of fiat-like elements where you know rulers would define how much it's actually worth through through decree, right? It doesn't necessarily have an independent, um, obvious value to people. So when you talk about the gold standard, this is part, there's a whole bunch of like complexities around that. The fact that the gold standard itself actually, in some ways, acts as, as a kind of, like a sort of um, a geological 
backstop to human institutions. So like this is one, it's one way that human institutions, monetary institutions try to give themselves legitimacy is by pointing to some external source saying, well, we have this gold-backed currency. But whether the gold really is actually the thing that, that, that gives the currency its power is a sort of separate question. Um, but yes, nowadays, I don't know if that fully answered your question, well, but, but, but nowadays we have none of this, this notion of a commodity backing to money. And we're talking about huge sort of network structures based on um, kind of circuits. So if you follow, for example, the, the modern monetary theory movement, the MMT community, um, or chartalism more generally, what they'll be talking about is how the fact that the state's power to coerce and, and demand its own money back is what gives the anchoring of money. You don't need this commodity backing to money. And then the banking sector will be building on top of that. I ask because it's really relevant to this debate around the switch from national money to private money or purely private money yeah. or private money becoming almost entirely dominant, which seems to be a big part of the hypothesis here of us moving fundamentally to these casino chips. And I suppose this will be relevant as we proceed with the conversation, but whether or not you agree or disagree with some of the things you were saying with regards to metallic standards for money, gold is a store of value, which can perhaps transcend borders in a certain way. Whereas sure, yeah, yeah. if you have a store of value, which is a currency, which is purely digital, then a government arbitrarily can devalue it. And, and I know you're saying that that happened in the past too, but in a global economy, yeah, yeah. It's a it's slightly different. We'll we'll stick, however, with the more um, well, I mean, maybe the last thing I'll please. say is, is just to be aware of the political use of the imagination of gold in lots of circles. So I would just I, I would just want to problematize the history of gold because it often there's a sort of a standard assumption that somehow it had this obvious value. And in reality, if you look at the sort of the details of the, of the history of gold, it's a lot more complex than this. But within, especially for example, within the conservative imagination, gold is held up to be this exemplar of how money is supposed to be. And if you think about sort of monetary politics around austerity, for example, they will try to project this idea that true money is like gold. Therefore, non-commodity money, like you know the banking sector and the state, should act as if it is a commodity. Right. And so if you want to look at the politics of like monetary language, this is what, for example, the MMT movement tries to do. They say, when you speak about money as if it's a commodity, you create this constraint of the imagination, which then pre prevents all sorts of political opportunities. It's what you, what's used to um, justify austerity, for example. There's not enough of this commodity. We've run out of this commodity. We can't pay for the health services, for example. So you're not a gold bug then? No, but I'm actually very fascinated by the history of yeah. gold because it's so fascinating when you when you look at, you know, even if you go to Adam Smith, for example, and you look at his, his accounts of gold, he'll talk about how the Spanish conquistadors, for example, arrive in uh, South America and the local population there are, are so confused as to why the Spaniards are so obsessed about getting getting gold because they're like, what, is, what has happened to you that you so do want this commodity that we view essentially as being a kind of sort of side luxury good for some elites maybe, right? So there, it's not actually obvious that gold is obviously valuable to everybody in a way. So how do you respond then to the, the sort of counterclaim, which would be, well, look, in the 19th century, which is a big part of the conservative imagination, like you say, the 19th century, we have a huge um, expansion in wealth, productivity, industry, um, and we have currencies, principally the British pound, 
which are um, linked to a metallic standard of some kind. We have inflation really of basically 1%, more or less, for the best part of a century. Very different to what we've seen after 1971, very different to what we saw last year, for heaven's sake. H how do you respond to that? Because they would say, look, if you want a low inflation, low volatility, sort of macro context yeah, yeah. for your economy, gold is the way to go. Wh why is that wrong or misguided? I mean, I'm not going to, I mean, Look, I'm not an expert at every aspect of economic history, right? I'm sure that you'll can bring in historians of the gold standard here who could tell you all the details of that kind of thing. But it's, you know, capitalist economies go through different phases, right? At some point, maybe you actually need to create, to scale up a money system. You might want to have this sort of illusion of a commodity backing. And bear in mind, lots of the gold standard stuff is this kind of like, almost like a sort of smoke and mirrors thing where you sort of pass around gold in the background while the banks create new money on top of that. Lots of what's, what's circulating in the 1900s isn't actually gold, it's like promissory notes, right? And the whole history of capitalism is actually built upon, you know, merchants issuing out essentially these private forms of credit, which may or may not be backed by, by some hypothetical stash of gold somewhere. But there's a sort of psychological um, backing of this, you know, this this, this this idea that you can eventually get this commodity somewhere. But in reality, nobody actually uses the commodity for the exchanges, right? In the, in the background, they sometimes do clearing via that. You know, and, and during the gold standard, the central banks used to somehow have, used to sometimes have these like warehouses where they would sort of shift the gold between different parts of the warehouse to represent it going to different countries, right? While the real world actually just used these promissory notes. Um, so what it does do though, is it constrains your ability to expand your money supply. Right? Because if you're having to go through this sort of almost like a charade of moving metal around all the time, it does actually create this, this, uh, this um, constraint, which can actually in certain types of scenarios be positive for an economy. It depends what situation you're in. But if you're you know, looking at the 1970s, it started to create this, in a, in a way, contradictions in the system where they just, they just said, you know, let's just let go of that. Why are we constraining ourselves? You know, let capital run free. Sorry to interrupt this interview with Brett Scott. I hope you're enjoying it. But I have some good news. We have passed the 2000 mark in terms of our fundraiser. Before the end of this year, we here at Navarra Media were looking to gain an extra 5,000 new paying supporters, and we're almost halfway there. So if you enjoy our daily show, Navarra Live, or Downstream, or our articles, podcasts, email newsletters, there's so much, then I would implore you to become a supporter too. Uh, that can be from just one pound a month. But by becoming a supporter, you help us plan to be even bigger and even better in 2024. Hugely important given there may be a general election. So if that sounds good to you, join us here at Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. The link is in the description below and become part of a movement to change not just the media, but politics too. So how do banks issue money today in 2023? I mean, there's sort of uh, two, two main ways. I mean, the sort of um, when they're creating new money, they basically just issue out new digital casino chips, as it were, right? When you're asking for loans. So, uh, I mean, so there's, there's, there'll be, if you think about the sort of casino metaphor that I use, the sort of one way they do it is if I, you know, I, I go and hand them cash, for example, then they push out these digital chips to me. Right? That's, you're being given new money as, as, in a sense, but that on net in the monetary system, that's not creating a sort of new you know, they, they're taking money out of circulation and pushing new money to you in a new form. When they're creating actual new money in terms of like expanding the money supplies, when people are asking for loans, right? So somebody rocks up there and says, can I have a loan? And they just issue out new digital casino chips to them, right? They just say, okay, boom, here it is. And that then will get 
mediated by the payment system. So that person now sees in their account, oh, I've got a bunch of these new, essentially digital chips. I want to now pay somebody. Now they go back to their bank and say, like, hand these to somebody else. And that's what all the sort of you know payments infrastructure is, is how do you move those around? And for the banks, that's where the, where the risk comes in. You know, if you issue out a bunch of these sort of casino chips and then a person demands that you actually then go and redeem them, um, it can put the bank at, bank at risk. I don't know if I've explained that. No, I, lo- I love I love the metaphor of cas- casino chips. Yeah. I, I love the phrase "economic access tokens." You know, it sounds very yeah. So that's something from the future, but we're living well, it. One know? of the confusing things that people have with um, people who are concerned about monetary systems often hear this phrase that you know banks create money, um, and they think somehow sometimes they make this mistake of thinking that the banks kind of issue the money to themselves and enrich themselves. In reality, when banks are issuing money, it's actually a risk to them. All right, think about a casino. When it's pushing out chips, it's you know it'll take in your cash and push out chips to you, and then it's fully backed, right? If you come and demand the redemption of your chips, it can, it can give you back cash and you can leave. But for the banks, they push out far more of these, in a sense, casino chips than they have in reserves, and for them that becomes a potential risk because if people demand too much, it can cause the bank to go bust, which is called a bank run, right? So what they're trying to do essentially is. Um, the reason why they push out so much money is they, they're harvesting loan agreements back from the public in the process. And then they're trying to manage the risk of that to slowly over time, essentially, um, yeah, make profits from, that, from the differential between those, those things. But many people don't realize that the banking sector actually has to be very careful when it's pushing out new money because it can get in serious trouble if it pushes out too much. So this all sounds like a very profitable enterprise. Why does the state allow certain private businesses, which is what various banks are, mm-hmm. why does it give them that ability? Why isn't there just one state-owned bank no, which gives out it, economic access tokens? Well, think about a, a capitalist system, right? Imagine it's like a giant sort of sort of network structure with lots of people who are all kind of locked in, right? It's always trying to expand, right? And if you're if you're relying upon a sort of central entity to push out the uh, tokens that will enable that expansion. It, it, it's, I don't know, that's, that's something they don't necessarily want to do. They often will defer that job to the banking sector. So if you think about like the frontier of an economy, right? I'm trying to think of a kind of a metaphor. Um, let's literally imagine a frontier, okay? There's a bunch of land there. It hasn't been exploited yet. You have a bunch of laborers, people who could actually do something with it, but they Imagine they don't have enough money to sort of mobilize each other, like a boss doesn't have it. So if you go to a bank and say, hey, extend new credit, basically push out new digital casino chips, I can then pay my workers, and they all go exploit that land, they'll create new products which you can push back into the market. So you expand, expand the network, right? And that will neutralize any inflation in the sense of you creating new stuff now with this new money. Um, and that's the basic idea. And so you sort of can imagine the banks, they've sort of, the state kind of views them as supposed to be on the, the vanguard of an, of an economy, enabling it to expand. In reality, though, whether that actually happens or not is a separate question. So lots of the politics of banking is that banks will push that money into sort of unproductive stuff, like housing, for example, rather than actual new productive capacity. So they'll inflate asset markets rather than creating new stuff. And so if you're looking at banking reform, this is one of the big topics, like how do you make banks do socially useful creation of money? Resource than, allocation, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but the theory among a, a sort of in some of the sort of states that would, would that would be that you know, we don't want to be the person, the one that's defining what the new thing is. These guys are supposed to know what is going to be productive. 
It's an interesting one. I mean, I asked that because of right now there's this huge gap between it's getting a little bit better. A few months ago, it was a joke, really. This huge gap in terms of interest rates for savers, people with deposits in their bank accounts, and people with mortgages, credit cards, et cetera, because of course you had the Bank of England increasing the base rate, which is the, the interest rate at which they give money to these private banks. And um, that was not really feeding through in terms of interest rates on people's savings, but it was definitely feeding through very quickly in terms of the interest rate on, on people's loans, people's mortgages, mm. which was, you know, it's effectively, I think, an argument for a windfall tax on banks like we've seen with energy companies, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I don't quite understand why the state doesn't just do some of that. It seems very yeah, strange well, to me that we've given this extraordinary power, quasi-governmental power, yeah. these private businesses. Well, the devil's in the detail with the stuff, right? So a lot, of the, a lot of the financial reform movements are about saying, actually, these guys don't do the job that you they theoretically in a sort of, you know, econ 101 model, it's imagined that, that, that they do, right? So actually, it would be better to take this into a, you know, um, have a sovereign money system where it's, there's democratic decisions of who gets access to credit rather than you know deferring it to a profit-seeking bank that'll actually often use the money for other purposes or sort of exploit people in various ways or hand the money out to its mates rather than in the, you know, in the corporate sector rather than to ordinary you know um, people who need it for, I don't know, small business credit or something. So there's huge amounts of politics around how you kind of tinker with that system. Right. Um, one of the one of the complexities, though, is that you know, in, in, interestingly, you, you find within monetary reform circles a historic tension between people who call for the reform of the banking sector and say like the MMT charterists in the U.S. So you'll have people, for example, who say what we can control in the money system is the state part of it. We can control the central bank. We can't control the banks. They're always going to do what they're going to do. Don't try to control them. Let's just focus on what we can control. All right. So that's more the MMT approach, saying if you try to constrain the banks, if you try to put regulations, it's going to they're going to create a shadow banking sector and it'll manifest somewhere else in the system in some toxic form. So just let them do what they're going to do, and then we'll focus on balancing that out with state issued. Uh, money elsewhere in the system. But if you're in the UK, groups like Positive Money, for example, um, which is a, a lobby group around monetary systems, they focus more on saying, hey, we've got to control the banking sector, right? And don't focus as much on the on the, the kind of state part of the money system. Yeah, I mean, just to finish this, this part of the conversation, I mean, it just strikes me as an important utility. You know, we talk about utilities with regards to energy, transport, education, healthcare, Credit creation and banking is an important utility of, of huge importance in terms of literally allocating resources throughout society, yet we don't think of that as political. Crazy. Or, 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 or most people Yeah, don't. yeah, yeah. Well, that's well, that's, a, that's a success of the banking sector that they've managed to often make out that they're just sort of these apolitical intermediaries who sort of, you know, there's a commodity out there called money and they just sort of let it flow through them and so on. That's what that's what they do. You know, this is, this is the story that they've created in the, in the public. Many, most people don't even realize that they have this you know, power to create these digital casino chips, as it were, and they're, and they're mobilizing sectors of the economy that they want and shutting down other sectors that they don't like. Uh, so yeah, it's a massively political issue, and, but most people don't, don't realize that. It talks about fintech. It's a word we hear all the time. It's a big part of the fintech, book. Yeah. What is fintech? Fintech is just the automation of finance. It's simple. I mean, that's it's just like um, any process that used to be done by some... Uh, if you think about a traditional bank, for example, it's got 
it'll have you know forward facing people you know people sitting in the branches for example they all funnel stuff back to like you know bankers who will make decisions about loans and things and fintech basically says this how do we automate them you know and the sort of first wave of fintech was um all about automating the user experience or the sort of the basically firing the service staff of banks saying you know rather than me going to interact with a human and asking them about you know a mortgage i just go into an app so you've got this interface between you and the actual decision makers second phase fintech is very much about how do you automate the bankers themselves you know how do you use ai models for example to make decisions on loans rather than having a, a human banker make that decision um there's also a whole series of stuff especially with the crypto world when, when blockchain technology came out um a lot of the banks were very interested and still are interested in how they use versions of that technology to automate the background processes between themselves because banks have to coordinate between themselves. Bear in mind, they collaboratively run a large part of the monetary system. So even if they're competing, they also, also have to collaborate a lot. So there's a lot, the interbank market is a huge part of the financial system. Can you give system. me an example of that? In terms of inter a real a, a real world example that somebody can understand where- So for example, you, you go into the high street and you see, for example, like a fixed rate mortgage. Right, to say, oh, the bank's offering a fixed rate mortgage. In the background, the bank has entered into a deal with like Goldman Sachs to say, can you do a interest rate swap with me? Which means even if the interest rates change, we're going to be able to like lock in this fixed this fixed rate, right? So there'll be some some, and then maybe Goldman Sachs is selling that to a hedge fund in the background. So the hedge fund's taking on the risk that there'll be a change in the interest rates. This is how, why the bank has been able to lock in a fixed rate, right? In the public, all you see is like a brochure for this fixed rate mortgage or something. But in reality, there's a bunch of collaborating banks in the background who are doing deals with each other. Right? So in the realm that I used to work in in, um, in finance was around the interbank markets right, where these banks are all collaborating with each other. Um, and so, you know, and there's that, that, that background structure has a huge number of moving parts and there's lots of work for you know, back office employees who are trying to make sure that the, that the you know, one bank has the same idea as another bank. And so they also want to automate that. And that's what they became very fascinated with, with so-called distributed ledger technology, which was a sort of offshoot of blockchain culture, saying we could coordinate automate we, we could automate coordination between ourselves as well. And that's so fintech is basically any aspect of automation in finance. The the answer is almost too pithy, right? Because you basically <laughs> said it in the first sentence. What's interesting for me is that, and it rarely goes mentioned in the whole automation discourse. Um, we talk about, you know, um, self-driving cars. We talk about changes in retail with people doing self-checkout at, um, you know, at the till, even though that's not really automation. You know, so there's all these things in the popular imaginary, but we very rarely talk about what's happened to banks, retail banks, over the last 15 years, 16 years, particularly since the 0708 crisis. And of course, that was accelerated by so many of these guys facing effectively bankruptcy, going to the wall, having to make huge cost savings. Um, and people's experience of, of banking has become so heavily automated so quickly, yeah. and yet we take it for granted. And what you're saying is, your definition of fintech, is that that experience of retail banking just going some, from something very much offline, part of your everyday experience on every high street, several banks, just all of them disappearing, something similar-ish will be happening to jobs in financial services over the next several decades, presumably. Yeah. Because if the, na if the name of the game is automation, that means lots of people are going to be expelled from the labor process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has echoes of all the automation debates, right? The question is, will which employees get fired? 
which ones somehow upskill and have some, you know, you know, there's all those same debates apply in finance. The complexity, of course, is people historically imagine that financial workers are very powerful, right? You know, the, the quintessential like trader who's this like character you think is a kind of superhero or villain. Um, a lot of those people also are under threat, right? Um, Goldman Sachs used to have like 4,000 traders or something on, um, I don't, I forget the exact exact number, but like thousands of traders on the sort of stock exchange floors. Now they got like four or something, right? It's all done by automated systems. So yeah, a lot, of, even those sort of high end financial workers are potentially in in danger. Um, the one part of finance which is not in danger is the sort of deal making world. You know, like GlaxoSmithKline wants to like merge with I don't know Pfizer or something or whatever, whoever it is, right? And you know, you have all these bankers who who sort out the financials. That's not something that's very easy to. Like, like negotiations of power are not very easy to automate, right? Because it's all human, human to human stuff. But a lot of the sort of you know call centers, you know, the, you know all the chatbots are basically like, how do you get rid of all the service, the call center staff, or at least maybe like you know, sort of lower the, the number of people there. Um, so yeah, it's it's a there's a big sort of disruption in the financial sector, and lots of the financial workers who previously thought that they were superheroes. Are starting to realize that actually their bosses don't necessarily care that much about them, <laughs> you know, when they can cut costs. Yeah, I find this really fascinating with the the whole white collar angle with automation, because of course we're, we're about the same age. Growing up, you were t- you were told really that it was in manufacturing. You know, blue collar workers were the people that were losing out because of automation. You know, the car industry was mm-hmm. the sort of quintessential example. And what we're seeing now is consultants, accountants, lawyers, uh, lawyers, yeah, legal services, and now you're saying here, of course, with fintech. Of course, not all these jobs will disappear, but many, many, many of them will disappear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And they're exactly the jobs or the industries that the children of the affluent, aspirational, professional middle class, professional managerial class rather, sure, yeah. were attracted to. And that's, that's going to be quite radicalizing if, if all of a sudden it's very hard to become an accountant, a financier, a lawyer. Sure. So what do yeah. we do with what do we do with what do we do with this is a bit of a tangent. What what do we do with you're saying these 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 people in finance who who lose their jobs who are laid off? Do you think they have a, a potential sort of political agency that might be yeah, in, inflamed it's, somehow? It's intriguing actually. I was actually just recently spending time with a group of sort of corporate lawyers um, who historically you wouldn't think of as being a particularly politically radical group. But a lot of them are very angsty um, about a lot of this automation technologies, right? So there's definitely um, something in the air in the professional services where people are suddenly becoming, being forced to think more about the consequences of stuff they would just normally imagined happened to people somewhere else, right? Um, so I don't know how that manifests politically yet, um, but I definitely know something's in the works. Uh, it's actually quite interesting that uh, I don't know if you saw recently Mark Andreessen, who's the kind of like arch venture capitalist of Andreessen, Andreessen Horowitz, which is you know, one of the world's biggest venture capital firms. He just put out this techno optimist manifesto, um, I think last week, which is basically almost like a religious text where he sort of goes all in on just saying markets and technology will save the world, and if you don't, if you don't buy That's into original, this, if you don't, if you don't buy into this, you're a drag upon humanity. Right, um, and it's interesting that he chooses, chooses this moment to do it because I sense that suddenly in his networks, you know, he's hanging out at parties and people aren't as positive towards him as they used to be. 
right, back in the sort of heyday of, of tech when he was sort of making all his money, probably he was so, sort of seen to be a heroic figure. But suddenly he has like, for example, corporate lawyers who are a bit like, oh, I wish I'm not, not so sure how, how I feel about this. And so he's feeling this anxiety. He suddenly needs to sort of go all in and show why mm. actually when he goes to work in the morning, he's a heroic agent rather than just like a pawn for some inhuman force, right? Um, and so that's quite an interesting, interesting thing. I don't know if that's, that's my sort of intuition. Um, that's really, that's really smart. I mean, I think one of the, one of the big things we'll say over the next 10 years is a more thoughtful approach to technology, maybe for better, maybe for worse. But I think that kind of the California, California ideology, people like Andreessen Horowitz, where more technology, more automation is good. No questions asked. If you, if you don't agree, you're a dummy, you're irrelevant, you're history. And I think from children being able to access stuff online to some of the conversations around cashless society, we'll really get into the weeds of that in a minute, uh, to social media and mental health, to automation and potentially lost jobs. Lots of people are thinking now from all kinds of backgrounds, right? Hang on a minute. Maybe we should have a conversation about what we want to do and not do with this yeah. technology. And people like that are all of a sudden like, what the hell? That, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. been the last 30 years. And also one of the things that's happened is, remember the, the traditional story around automation is like, oh, well, you'll be freed from toil and then you'll be able to do something better. Uh, you'll be able to engage in, you know, the kind of quintessential like writing poetry and you know, composing songs. But then they're trying to automate that as well, right? So people are suddenly like, oh, all these things that we treasure, that we actually are the things you're supposed to, you're supposed to, um, you love, you also, I guarantee right now, Spotify has a team working on generative AI for like creating like elevator music, you know, because they'd be like, well, it's cheaper for us to do this than to uh, hire musicians. So suddenly there's, there's going to be a debate around people being like, oh, wait a moment. Uh, where is the sort of um, pots of gold at the end of the rainbow mm. kind of thing, right? Like, are you going to automate that as well? Um, so actually there's a lot of people who I think a lot more angsty than, than with say maybe like industrial automation. Um, that's my intuition. I don't know. No, I think that's right. Some of the music, by the way, um, is very good. <laughs> you know, you listen to like the Beatles performing a song by the Stones using AI. Yeah, yeah. Some of it's very bad. Some of it's very good. Um, sticking with uh, fintech, um, you make the argument that big tech and finance are merging. Yeah. What does that mean? Because obviously big tech's got a very bad reputation. Finance has got a bit of a bad reputation, if we're honest. So them coming together sounds like quite bad news. It's interesting that you say big tech's got a bad reputation. Bear in mind that the early days of fintech, it had a good reputation. Good reputation. So during the financial crisis when I was working, it was finance were the bad guys, right? It was like, ah. Oh. And that's when fintech really came because they said, hey, we're going to democratize finance. We're going to revolutionize it. You don't like the banks, we'll make it better for you. And actually, all the early fintech ads you'd see on the London underground, I mean, I remember a very classic one, Nutmeg, this automated investment crew. They even had this big this big banner which said, um, sick of the banks, use us instead. And it had sort of like, you know, bear that was like their kind of mascot. Came back to London <clears throat> uh, last year and I see the same company is now being bought by JP Morgan. Right? That's so interesting. Right? And so they've essentially sold out. All right, and just joined, has been absorbed into the banking sector. Um, and that's sort of viewed as being like, oh, well, in the early days, it was just rhetoric, right? We we're just, we we're just being funny. But now, we, now, we, now we're serious. Now we're part of JP Morgan. Uh, so the, ver the, the fintech industry very, very clearly used the sort of uh, revolutionary rhetoric in the beginning of, uh, during the financial crisis, being like, we're going we're gonna to bring in Silicon Valley aesthetics into finance. And Silicon Valley is like the sort of do no evil. It's all the sort of geeky hackers and stuff. And they're kind of like friendly. But there's been a shift in public perceptions now. Actually, the banking sector sort of ignored to some extent and people are, are way more angsty about the, the tech sector now. Um, 
But in the background, yeah, they're fused, right? Bear in mind that Amazon, for example, cannot possibly operate without being fused into digital finance architectures. I mean, I was just, just when I was walking here, I saw the new Amazon, one of their new Go Cashierless stores. I mean, that entirely depends upon being plugged into the banking sector via Visa and MasterCard. It can't operate otherwise. So, uh, a lot of big tech architectures rely upon upon digital finance architectures. Uber, for example, like unless you can have that automatic payments, it's it's um, it's not really going to operate properly. So, yeah, and and they have different ways of interacting with each other. Sometimes they have direct deals. Sometimes the the, the tech companies try to like get banking licenses, but but more often than not, than not they form collaborations, and that's a big thing. And this plays into the politics of cash, right? Because the one thing they all agree upon is they don't like cash. Because it's friction. Yeah, that's what they call it friction, right? Um, otherwise known as you know texture, um, or <laughs> you know tactility. Uh, so so yeah, but for them that's something that's sort of you can't automate, you can't have, you can't scale, you can't. Uh, it's too localized, it's too it's too human essentially, right? Um, so for a large scale entity that's trying to optimize profit, it would say uh, it's much cheaper for us to interact with Visa's master Visa and Mastercard's data centers than it is to try and collect cash from human beings. So let's just do that instead. And so, so the, all the politics of big tech and big finance get tied up. You know, they, they start, start to manifest culturally at a cultural level in society as the sort of imaginations that cash is out of date or that it's somehow dirty and wrong or something, or you feel culturally shamed for using it um, and so on, which you can see very clearly playing out in London right now. Yeah, you have this great line. It was like the, the first singer of the book towards the start, and you just talk about cloud money is effectively the automation of money. And if you're trying to, if you're trying to, like you say, create um, huge business operations across borders at massive scale, this stuff is a real problem. You know, this annoying little thing of money and people yeah, yeah. having to to swap it between their For stupid sure. little hands. We want yeah. pure abstraction and the digital ether. And bear in mind what's what the what the tech industry and the sort of anti-cash people have an advantage is that they can exploit local angst about cash, for example. Because I mean, cash is not a perfect system. Like any system, it's got you know, it's, you know, good and bad elements to yeah. it. But they will exploit anything. So, for example, they'll be like, "Oh, it's a realm of corruption." So they'll appeal to, like, for example, a Transparency International campaigner who's concerned about corruption, and they'll they'll present themselves almost as being a kind of solution to corruption. They'll be like, "Oh, well, in, in Italy, it's used for organized crime," and they'll exploit that. But if you if you zoom out in the global economy and say, "Who's the big power in the global economy?" Right, I would say it's you know the corporate sector because that's my political bias. And you say like, what's the real reason why this this stuff is being pushed out? It's just it's corporate automation, right? And they happen to be able to mobilize the various local arguments um, at will um, to sort of demonize cash in whatever particular local context they find themselves in. In South Africa, it'll be something like, and that's where I come from. It'll be something like, oh, cash is a burden on the poor. They, they lack access to financial services, so uh, get rid of it because it'll help them to become uh, empowered financially, right? And that's so that that's what they'll use in developing country contexts to to justify essentially their their standard expansion drive. Because you've got this amazing confluence of interests, like you say, you've got these huge big tech corporations, you've got banks, you've got some states. And there are this panoply of arguments made for different things, and all these strange little initiatives. Better than Cash Alliance, yeah, it's a, a favorite in the, in the sort of like people who are the, more the conspiracy mindset. So who are they? The better Cash, better than Cash, better Alliance? than Cash Alliance is just like a kind of 
Um, if, okay, let's, if I'm giving the non-conspiracy version, it's like an underfunded, slightly, Prefer preferably, a know. slightly underfunded small think tank within a within the UN. Um, you know, the UN has these various little like think tank in initiatives, um, and the Better Than Cash Alliance kind of is one of them, and it has a small secretariat. And it gets funding from Visa and MasterCard and Citigroup and Bill Gates and a bunch of people who on paper don't look very good in terms of, well, it seems that they have got some very obvious interests. Um, the Better Than Cash Alliance staff themselves don't perceive themselves to be doing anything wrong. They think that they're just helping you know, people in developing countries to get access to digital services. But you can tell by the name, it's not very neutral. It's like the Better Than Cash Alliance. It's not saying, hey, we're pro-digital payment. It's saying cash is like crap. Right, so there's a very obvious sort of problem there, and they 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 attempt to cast themselves as being a sort of just a, you know a helpful institution. It goes to it goes to, for example, you know Unilever and says you should be helping your workers and your supply chain to digitize their savings. Right, you should be encouraging your um, uh, suppliers to pay your, their employees in digital payments rather than in cash. Right, because it's better for transparency and it's better for this kind of stuff. So they try to exploit corporate supply chains to push, uh, to push um, digitization, um, and you know Bill Gates turns up and speaks there and stuff. So obviously, for conspiracy theorists, it's such an obvious target, right? Because you see these elites who uh, <laughs> are trying to like get people to sign on to like get out, get rid of cash. Um, whether that plays out in the minds of the secretariat, there is is uh, a separate story. They actually believe that they're doing something good, right? Um, because they're kind of vested in the ideology, as it were. And bear in mind, in lots of the development world, like in the international development world, they're often, um, uh, there's kind of like a Stockholm syndrome thing going on. They kind of think if a country doesn't get absorbed by corporate capitalism, it's being left behind. Therefore, we must help corporate capitalism to extend. It's, it's a humanitarian act to help Visa and MasterCard spread into the sort of outskirts of, of all these places, right? Because if they don't, they're going to be shafted because if you're not part of the, the, the core structure, you're now sort of, quote unquote, left behind, right? So in a weird way, they find themselves in a strange situation, which is like, we, you, we, we better serve the gods of capital because if you get ignored by the gods of capital, you're going to be screwed, right? But you will now get absorbed into the structure at the very bottom, Right. Mm. So, like that's 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 the job of the financial inclusion professional. Often, that's where the Better Than Cash Alliance comes along and gets Bill Gates to speak. Yeah, I love. Well, you talk about this quite in the quite a lot in the book, and it's just quite funny, right? You say, "Look, we're going to get rid of cash. You have to use this new thing, and then we create the new problem of oh no, people are excluded. Now we're going to be inclusive, and it's like, well, you just excluded a bunch of people. Like you're not yeah, doing yeah, anybody yeah. a favor here. Yeah, and actually, it's, it's very fascinating to, to look at how the narratives work because the overarching narrative which is the kind of corporate capitalist sort of acceleration type narrative is like progress basically means ever more uh, speed, scale, automation, right? That's the kind of unquestioned thing. And right now that happens to be digitization. Then below that, that generates a bunch of sub-narratives, right? So once you have that structure, mental structure in place, it then you, you can then choose where you go. You say, oh, you want to lead the way. Right, so in Silicon Valley, they have like, we better lead the digital transition. We're the ones who like on the front. And then they say like, if you don't want to lead, you better follow because if you don't follow, you're going to be left behind. If you're left behind, we're going to need to find ways to include you. Uh, and the, all these narratives you'll see playing out in the press, mm. for example, about cash. They'll be like, oh, you know, who's leading the way in fintech? And then it'll be like, um, um, oh, wait, who's going to be left behind? 
and oh wait, we better find ways to like do inclusion initiatives, right? And then you'll have occasionally like a labor politician who says something like, well, maybe we should slow it down a bit, you know, give them some more time to get absorbed. And that's that's how how that ideology works, right? And it's like a, it's a sort of you, you recruit this brilliant phrase. I haven't heard it for a long time. Interpolation. Oh, yeah. From Althusser. Yeah, yeah. So what is interpolation and how is it relevant to what you just said? It's just like when you speak at somebody as if they should agree with you, you know, you sort of just say like, um, I'm probably giving some, I don't know if like, you know, sort of heavy Althusserian theorists will agree with my crude definition. But yeah, basically like when, you, when you're on the London Tube and, and, and the, it's sort of the, the, the adverts speak at you as if you already agree with them. Right. They don't they don't try to convince you about something. They don't say, we think you should think about this product. They just speak at you as if you like like, like their product. Right. And it almost like reverse engineers a, 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 in your brain the idea that you are this person. Right. Um, it's like it's like when you go to like, you know, your you go to like a your your um you, you, a family dinner and you, and some like your grandmother or your aunt or something says, you know, so so when are you when are you getting married? You know, they sort of speak at you as if you are a person who obviously wants to get married, right? And that creates this idea that, like, if you're not doing that, there's something wrong with you. Um, so interpolation is these kind of processes where you get, uh, I guess, in like Althusser would say, you, you get hailed, in a sense. They sort of just speak to you as this person who agrees. Um, it's a very effective marketing technique, um, and large parts of you know, corporate capitalism works like that. Mm. And like, if you don't agree, you're a weirdo and nobody wants to be a weirdo. Everybody wants to fit in. So, yeah, know. yeah, yeah. You know, and this is, this process happens all, all over society, right? So um, I think one of the examples I'm, I'm, I'm particularly fascinated by is, is, is Cyber Monday, um, which was the, the National Retail Federation, of, uh, which is a sort of lobby group, just started speaking about it as if it existed. They said, welcome, you know, what are you going to do for Cyber, Cyber Monday? People are like, what, what's Cyber Monday? Like, oh, what are you going to do for it? And the French people are like, oh, this is a thing. This exists, right? You just, just spoke it into existence, essentially, yeah. right? And that's, um, that's a, a lot of the stuff happens like that. I love that because <laughs> it's basically like I can imagine, well, I've seen them, you know, like advert, like say on the tube, that's the quintessential example. Um, Generation Z loves fintech. They love digital money. They hate cash. And then, you know, the older people, somebody like my mother-in-law, Bless her. She'll go there to watch a show in the West End and she'll be like, oh, young people, they don't like cash anymore. I guess if I want to be relevant and I want to know what the next yeah, generation is yeah. like, I don't want to feel old, I'll have to be like them and I have to not like cash either. For sure, yeah. And the, mar the marketing execs heavily exploit the, that generation. And bear in mind, a lot of the fintech execs are like in their 40s. Um, so they they very, very, you know, well, it is their 30s, 40s, right? So, so they, they very cynically exploit the youth. Right, they say we want to create this idea that this stuff is modern and progressive. Um, essentially, the, the idea that this sort of the creep of corporate capitalism is, is a progressive force. Precisely. And 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 um, to do that, we will essentially exploit the fact that young people have this essentially a need to differentiate themselves from their elders, which is like a basic life process, right? Young people want to believe that they're independent, they're somewhat different. And of course, if you're a corporate marketer, this means they're an ideal vulnerable population for you because you can insert a product as being the thing that you use to define yourself as being different from your elders, right? So they, this is why they've, they've done this for like, you know, a long time before FinTech. Um, but of course, if you, can, if you can get in there and insert your products as the thing that shows that you, you're differentiating yourself, then you, it's a massive, you basically have cultural hegemony, right? You, the people now associate your product with their liberation. Age cohort and incredible. Is that yeah. that you know um, Mad Men with Don Draper when he's meditating and he thinks about the 
advert for Coke. But it's true that this idea of you know brainwashing people to associate a certain product or a certain process with demographic change and with youth culture, I think that is one of the most powerful changes in Western culture since the 1960s, because it's such an extraordinary marketing device for, like say, corporate capitalism. And it's people don't realize it is so new. The idea that our, our economic preferences are driven by what we associate with what young people are doing, if you said that to somebody in like the Victorian era or the early 20th century, they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? I don't care what a 15-year-old is doing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, since yeah. the 60s, it's just this like amazing way of generating false consciousness, both for old and young alike. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, bear in mind, you know, and, uh, firms will, they will exploit any human impulse. They can also go exploit the parent's reaction to that, you know. But but generally, when you, when you um, look at the sort of leading edge of capitalism, the, the, the part of it that's, if you imagine, is like an entity that's trying to expand and accelerate. That you go to youth culture because that's that's where you push the new stuff, all right? Um, and then you can exploit the reaction from the people who don't like that by sort of offering them something different. But the, in the end, the leading edge is where, the, the youth culture is where is where you push out the system. Um, at least that's how I would, I would see it. Um, but it's it's a very fascinating topic, Brad, because they heavily exploit the, the youth in this. They say, oh well, this is what people, the young people, want. But also it becomes you know, even if you look at like you know, marginalized groups in the US, for example, how, for example, like, you know, Adidas and these shoe companies would sort of start to associate their brands with like rap culture and stuff like that. There's a, there's a whole long history of like, these firms interacting with people and sort of trying to position their products as being this thing that represents some kind of the way you culturally. Um, so it's, there's, there's nothing, nothing new about this process. But um, yeah, right now in fintech culture, they very heavily try to play on sort of like progressive aesthetics, you know, oh, cash or something at the old sort of like, you know, men use or something, mm. but you're a young progressive person. You know, it's a social movement. PayPal app is like what represents you. Yeah. And they'll have these very diverse sort of pictures of people and they'll be very kind of like trying to buy into it. That's partly why actually, if you look at the sort of reactionary elements of the pro-cash movements, because you know, I'm I'm part of a, well, I, I'm, I try to put out the progressive argument for cash, but there's a lot of reactionary elements as well. And they are partly are sometimes angsty about that very, the very aesthetics of FinTech marketing, right? So that's part of part of the dynamic. Because it's so fascinating, isn't it? Because when you look at, for instance, um, GB News, people on the right, I mean, they're the classic example because they love these stories. Um, <clears throat> Nat West, people are going in with lanyards where they can change their gender on the day of the week, that kind of thing. And then GB News will have like an hour and they'll be shouting and screaming about it. Ah! It's almost all about ESG scores. Almost all of those strange stories you see with big corporates leaning into... LGBT rights, you know, minority rights, etc. I'm not denigrating. I think it's a positive thing that we we value that stuff in our society. But the reason why they're doing it, as they're doing it, yeah, yeah. the reason why Coots has like you know pride across the front of the bank in central London yeah. is because of ESG scores. And it's fascinating, like you say, because what that then does is it generates this countercultural reaction from the right, older people. Um, let's be honest, white people, like in in, yeah, yeah. in in Canada with the truck drivers, if you look at the demographics of what was going on there, that those things map onto each other. And then all of a sudden, because people on the left say, oh, well, the right-coded thing is to attack coots for like being on the same side as pride. Yeah, the yeah. right-coded thing, the right are attacking Nat West. I have to be on the same side as Nat West. And yeah, you yeah. and you and, and they find this is, this is this is the coup. That's happened. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and they're defending like zany, mad stuff that's only being done because of ESG scores. Well, this is the thing that so in the UK, this is a, an issue, especially among the urban 
um, left or urban kind of whatever you want to call it progressive culture is that actually weirdly people are more likely to defend you know monzo and financial inclusion than to try to protect the cash system because in a way what they what they're trying to associate the sort of pro cash stuff with, which is often like some sort of that reactionary backlash and you know bearing what, what the what the you know corporates are like they're kind of like if i'm you know, they're partly human institutions, right? But often they they these are kind of entities that just do stuff because it's it's profitable, right? So they 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 can cloak themselves with any aesthetics they want, right? The the one thing that they sometimes struggle to appropriate is like worker union culture, right? But they they very they can they can appropriate like environmentalism, they can appropriate um, different sort of you know gender politics and and um, kind of what you call identity politics, I guess. Um, and so this this enables right wing strategists to start to try to associate corporate power with those those elements of the left, right? Um, and then it also then enables them to try to present themselves as being champions of the working class. And so so this is what's what's sort of happening in some of the, the parts of the cash debate, at least, is that you know Nigel Farage and people are being like trying to take away our you know our gender, but also our cash and our beer and this kind of thing, right? So. Um, that's something I have to deal with a lot in, in my campaigning around around the cash system. Yeah, if you go on YouTube, well, hopefully this interview does very well, and this will be the top, you know, the top search thing for cashless. But it is it is also like Nigel Farage going, you know, they're trying to take away your money, the pound in your pocket. Um, and what's fascinating for me is I only realised this actually quite recently after interviewing um, Dan Dan Evans, uh, who wrote this great book about the petty bourgeois, um, and the petty bourgeois as a class still use lots of cash, right? tradesmen, small business people, and that's historically the, the kind of class faction, which in the 20th century went towards fascism. They've been the bulwark of Thatcherism. You know, they've also been on the left in, in certain circumstances in the past. I think for the left to win, they'd have to attract a fair number of those people. And he said, this is one of the, one of the interesting signifiers of the, the 2020s is cash or cashless. So all the urban graduate class, Monzo, debit cards, you know, Apple, Apple Pay, but he would go back home, he lives in Cardiff, he'd go back home to where he is in South Wales and his old mates from school who were plasterers or bricklayers, they all had cash. And he was like, wow, this is a really obvious mm. difference in how huge, people huge are living difference. their lives. Yeah. And, and like you say, you're basically saying, okay, huge chunk of society, if that's right-coded, fuck off. When actually there are very strong left-wing arguments. Very to, strong, yeah. This is, the, the, keeping money. this is the amazing thing cash. about the cash debate is that basically the so-called cashless stuff is, is privatization, right? You, you're deferring your payment system to essentially private sector banks and tech companies. And you're the public part of your money system, which is a cash system. Because bear in mind, remember, remember the money system has that, that, that layering. The sort of first part is the, the, the public part. The only version of that we can use is the cash system, right? Then the digital part is, is private sector. Um, so when you talk about a cashless society, you're not only talking about an automation process, you're talking about a privatization process. Okay, so um, the idea that this privatization of the monetary system is a progressive thing is very controversial. Um, and the idea that sort of just letting the public part of the money system disappear, um, obviously that's, that's a... That's, that's, that should be a left, you know, resisting that should be a left-wing position. Especially if you're trying to create a balance of power between the players, right? Um, nobody, you know, I would not go out and say, you know, we shouldn't have apps and so on, right? But I'm, my position would be, you got to protect the balance of power in the system, right? You better have a strong state part to contrast the, the private sector part, right? Otherwise, you've got total domination from one side. So protecting the cash system is how do you, you know, is how you protect the balance of power in the system. Not only between public and private, but also between 
for example, um, autonomy independence, right? So this is why I often speak about cash as being like the bicycle of payments, right? So it's like, I can simultaneously like both bicycles and Uber, all right? The, the mere fact that Uber exists doesn't mean I have to reject older forms of transport. Actually, most people understand that systems work best when there's balances of power. Even like tech people who are like heavily into like digital ideology understand this. Um, and it's similar with the cash system. So under the overarching digital ideology, it's you know, cash gets presented as if it's this like, you know, horse cart of payments, this old thing that has to die. Right? But in reality, if you look at the actual structure of the monetary system, it's much more like the bicycle. Right, And much like you need a movement to build bicycle lanes in a city that's clogged with cars, you need a movement to counter the rhetoric of the digital or digital everything sector to say, you know what, we need this balance of power. And actually, this is progressive and it's forward looking. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I, that I would do. And it sh that should be a left wing position, in, in, my, in my opinion. Um, but it has been quite heavily, especially recently, it's been quite heavily captured by the right. And it's also partly to do with the fact that... Um, Stop me if this is getting... No, it's complex. fascinating. One of the reasons why the, the right has been able to colonize it is that one of the reactions to cashless society from central banks that, that happened during the pandemic was that during the pandemic, the digital rhetoric went ballistic, right? So all Tesco started blaring out saying, don't use cash and we prefer if you, you, know, you have to use you know, digital payments and so on. So there's a massive drop in transactional cash usage. Um, through the pandemic, which for all the companies that were already automating was a gigantic win, right? Because they were like, we already wanted to do this and now we have a cover of this yeah. this, this thing, right? So there's loads and loads of examples of companies that used the, the COVID rhetoric to get rid of cash and now won't go back. So like lots of pubs in London, they still say, oh, the reason we don't take cash is because of coronavirus. Despite the fact that there's like hundreds of drunk people breathing over their employees. Right, so so they clearly used it as a as a sort of way to accelerate an automation process that they already wanted to do. Um, but for a central bank, that's a problem because structurally in the monetary system, if you lose access to public money, the private money becomes unstable. Right, think about the casino chip metaphor. If you if you can't take your casino chip back and demand it to be redeemed, you're going to start doubting what this is. Similar with the so-called cashless payments, right? Those are these digital casino chips. If you cannot redeem that back for public money, there's a potential structural problem in your money system. So the central bank said, okay, in this context, we've got to maybe think about some replacement or at least some kind of thing to augment the cash system. And this is what they started having these debates about so-called CBDC, central bank digital currency, which is sometimes called the digital pound. As soon as that happened, the right wing was suddenly had a way to... Um, you know, historically, people on the right were concerned about cashless society, but like lots of, for example, libertarians always struggle when they have to critique corporations, right? Because in this sort of the, the ideal version of their ideology, they believe that the private sector always acts in the public interest, right? So they were having to critique banks by saying, you know, oh, cashless payments will will um, be used for surveillance, but they, they didn't really want to say that the, that the private sector banks were like bad guys necessarily. So. But basically what's happened is now because the state has started to say, maybe we'll issue a form, a form of private, a form of public digital money, this is much easier for right-wingers to attack, right? They say like, oh, right, this is like, you know, the old state versus market kind of framing. Yeah. You know, we can now attack it very easily. So that, you know, Farage and stuff, when they're talking about the, the, the dangers of a cashless society, they're not really talking about Visa and MasterCard and Barclays. They're talking about this imagined digital pound issued by the British state, right? And that's what they use to whip up 
So you'll see in all the kind of conspiracy type narratives, they're constantly talking about CBDC. Uh, they don't really focus on the private sector Brit aspect. Bitcoin. Yeah, as uh, some people call which is, it. Which is a hypothetical fantasy right now. The actual cashless system is, is the banking sector and big tech. But presumably you would need it in a cashless society because obviously if there's a if, a if a bank goes insolvent or something, right now we have, I don't know what you'll know this, I won't know it, but right now I think you have insurance for up to £70,000 for depositors in this country. For I forget the exact one, yeah. But like, something like that. So all, if all those, like you say, if all your casino chips disappear, you're going to have to have the, the state back up your casino chips up to a certain point. And obviously if there's no physical cash and you can't use that anywhere. It would have to be yeah. mediated in a way which is is digital. So presumably you would have to have CBDCs at some yeah, point. Yeah. It seems but, like it's but inevitable. Bear, but bear in mind for central banks, again, we're talking about capitalist states here, right? The central bank doesn't want to be, people who work at the central bank don't perceive, don't have a self-perception of, of themselves being like authoritarian dictators. Mm. They perceive themselves as people who try to maintain the, the stability of the monetary system and to help the banking sector, all right? Who are their members, right? So they don't have an inherent interest in disrupting the banking sector. Um, there is actually a left-wing argument for trying to have a state digital money in order to disrupt the banking sector. But I can, I can talk about that. But most, most ordinary central bankers perceive, reluctantly would say, okay, well, if there is a cashless society, we might have to do this CBDC, this digital pound thing to keep the stability. Um, but it's not their ideal. They don't want to rerunning the payment system. They want the banks to do that. Mm. All right. So they're being forced into this corner in a way. Um, and of course, the banking sector is now saying, okay, if you as the British state, for example, the central bank, um, start issuing this digital form of money, you're going to be competing with us. Barclays, Santander, all these players are heavily lobbying the central bank right now saying, you better not compete with us because we're the ones who control the digital systems. Right. And we don't want you cutting into our business model. So all the current debates around the so-called Bitcoin are basically the British, you know, the Treasury and these, these players trying to water down the proposals to make sure it doesn't disrupt the banking sector. So this is interesting about the CBDC thing. We'll stick with it for a moment. I mean, one of the arguments made for CBDCs, and I presume this would be with a it has to be publicly held digital currency, publicly created digital currency, is this argument that you can do negative interest rates quite easily with it. So I, I, how would that work? Or could that work with private banks issuing cash? So it seems a very strange thing to do. So in a crisis, or if a state wanted to, they could apply negative interest rates, which right now is you know, off the table effectively. How does that fit in with the whole CBDC thing? Yeah, well, look, digital money in general is... You know, you know, the public sometimes imagines when you when you are supposed to, to visually imagine digital money, they often imagine it's like cash flying around in digital form. But it's not. What you're talking about is a data center somewhere that you communicate with via a phone or a computer. Right. So it's a central system. This is how all digital systems work, right? You're communicating with some giant server. Of course, if everyone has these your you know your units of money recorded as essentially these digital casino chips in these data centers. You know, the person who runs that system gets to edit that stuff and can change it or can freeze it. So there's a lot more control of the systems, right? There's a lot more surveillance and so on. But you know, one of the things they would then talk about is programmability. You can start to put conditions on its movement. Right? You can say, hey, if you're not spending your money, it's going to start to essentially erode. You know, you, your bank account will start to slowly go down because you can see that you're not spending it fast enough. So that's, for example, a monetary policy tool. Whether or not they would actually do that is a separate question because it'd be politically incredibly unpopular. But it's, you know, that's a hypothetical possibility. And some of these kind of technocratic kind of people like that idea of being yeah. able to sort of have this more fine-grained control over how you use money. 
it would make sense. I mean, because there was something similar in the 30s in Austria, right, with time-limited currency. Yeah, the Vogel. So, yeah, exactly. So this idea was like, if there's a crisis of underconsumption, you want to get people out spending their money rather yeah. than saving it. But so that was that was an optional system. Yeah, right? so that's, that's what why, I mean. That's yeah. why it was uncontroversial. But if you have a non-optional version of that, you have a huge political backlash. So that's something that's very easy to whip people about up about. You know, oh, the state wants to erode your money and take it away from you. Um, well, quite. But I mean, you, know. you can imagine a certain. So, for instance, if there's a stimulus package, let's say you have a massive recession, the government says we're going to give everybody a thousand pounds, everybody, but it has to be spent within a month. You know, that would be. Yeah. That, but obviously, that's nine, that's, a, that's a politically easier. Yeah, but nine times out of ten, that wouldn't be what, what happens. And I think you're right. When people see that competence being given over to government, they would see it as unjustifiable. But you could do it via the banking sector too, right? So this is what, in a cashless society. The, the one thing about cash is it's called a zero you know, percent bound. It can't. If you're holding cash, you you can't. You know, some some person far away can't push a button and say erode it. You know, make it sort of disintegrate. Um, so in a sense, you're protected from negative interest rates via the cash system, which is why some people, for example, like Kenneth Rogoff, who's a sort of very mainstream establishment economist, um, who's very, he's quite anti-cash. He thinks, you know, cash stands in the way of being able to have this more um, fine-grained control of monetary policy. He's not necessarily actually, um, lots of central bankers don't agree with him on this. You know, there are central bankers who hate this idea, right? They say it's it's an infringement on freedom, it's an infringement on people's rights to control their own money and so on. So, you know, especially I'm based in Germany. In Germany, like the Bundesbank, for example, which is the most powerful central bank in, I guess, in, of the sort of national central banks, they're very anti that kind of stuff. They're actually quite pro um, keeping the cash system. Um, but yeah, hypothetically, if you were wanting greater centralized control of your monetary system, having it fully digital would be a would be something you want. And but that's yeah, it's, there's a lot of politics to that. I didn't know this, but already you're seeing in some European countries a threshold on the amount of cash. Yeah, you can spend. Yeah, and that's one of the ways they ratchet the system down, right? So if you if you have this overarching systemic trend towards trying to essentially extend the spread of corporate capitalism. Because um, bear in mind, you know, in a cashless society, the only way you interact with other human beings is via large institutions, right? So right now with the cash system, you have a large institution that pushes out a physical unit of money. But once it's left the institution, it has a kind of private sort of, you know, existence. You know, we pass it to each other. We don't have to ask some distant institution, right? But, you know, once you have, once you have everyone dependent upon these large-scale institutions, like every small-scale local interaction has to go via these massive players, Um and yeah, so so that's a sort of general trajectory in the economic system. And then one of the ways you can start to wean people off the cash system is to start to put these limits and then ratchet down. Um, and so that's happened, right? So people who are on the front lines are trying to protect the cash system will try to fight against those limits because they know that what they're used for is to sort of psychologically erode people's attachment to cash, right? So, and actually some of the sort of theorists of the, some of the anti-cash um, technocrats literally will say this, like, this is how you wean the public off the cash system, is to slowly reduce the amount they're allowed to use. And then they'll, they'll eventually just sort of forget. And they'll just like have transitioned onto the new system. Such a crazy theory of change. Don't tell the little people and they'll just, you know. Well, it's, you know, it's fairly, you know, you know they'll sort of openly say this and, and you know, sort of, you know, fintech conferences yeah. and stuff like that, you know, where it's sort of standard common sense, right? That's the, or everyone just assumes it's for the good of society. And what kinds of surveillance measures have already been used with um, with cloud money, with digital cash? 
So we talked about thresholds on, on real world offline cash. Yeah. Have, there, have there been any, any examples of surveillance? Yeah, I mean, there's extensive Please, surveillance of far away. The thing is, uh, the, the, okay, just to, to put the surveillance context, the surveillance debate in context. Right now, we don't have a cashless society, right? So, while it's true that digital payments get surveilled, and you know whether that's legitimate or not, sometimes it's like spying. Sometimes it's like you know the FBI has a subpoena and they're allowed to actually watch somebody's uh, transactions. Um, but people still have this private alternative, right? The sort of uh, privacy-preserving alternative. The big concern is that if you do not have that alternative, then suddenly you have mass um, mass potential for surveillance of all types of transactions. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons and tons of examples of, you know, the SWIFT network, for example, being surveilled by like US intelligence agencies and like... So what's the SWIFT network? The SWIFT network is basically how, if you're wanting to make an international transaction, um, uh, you... The SWIFT basically is it coordinates the national banking systems to interact with each other. Um, so, you know, it, it, like a national system, you know, like the British, the British, um, the British pound system has the central bank, has the, the commercial banks plugged into it, and has like a bunch of other players plugged into it. But if you want to get a unit, one of your digital casino chips, as it were, to jump across the ocean somewhere else, you're going to have to get two national banking structures to somehow coordinate with each other. So the SWIFT network will, you know, gets mobilizes the banks to to sort of put the wheels of international payments um, into action, right? Um, and there's a whole sort of complex system via that because actually, um, to to do international transactions, you basically have to have banks developing relationships with each other, right? And they often go to, via the U.S. dollar system, right? So they will, you know, a British bank will go via a U.S. bank to pay somebody in South Africa. Right, so they're all interacting with their, their different structures. Um, this is the sort of reserve currency kind of stuff with the U.S. Like they basically control; they're at the apex of the sort of international system, and SWIFT is basically heavily under their control. Um, so SWIFT becomes a mechanism of geopolitical power, right? Because you can start to project international power via this this um, this structure, as we saw with Russia. Yeah, exactly, and which is why then there's a big political imperative on on other political blocks to build their own versions of this. Right, or to not be dependent upon the U.S. systems, and interestingly, one element of the the central bank digital currency debate, CBDC debate, that's sort of not talked about in places like the U.K. is that if you're in the global South, um, you're very well aware. If you're in a country that's had a long experience of, for example, U.S. imperialism, like you know in South America, um, you know in Ecuador, in these dollarized countries, they say, you know, look, we're dependent upon the U.S. dollar, um, but this is we lose local autonomy with this. And when Visa and MasterCard are sitting there, while US citizens might have um, protections under US laws for you know, data and stuff, we don't, right? The US is not going to do anything about if our citizens are getting exploited or so on. So actually, some of the central banks in smaller, less powerful countries would say stuff like, we need to try to build our own digital systems to escape from mm. the sort of corporate America, as it were. Um, so that's that's one element of the sort of the, the, the global geopolitics. Of course, in places like Russia and stuff, these you know they want to have their own systems because they're trying to build. Um, China is actually also very heavy on building its own its own systems and trying to win power for its own systems. So there's a big kind of cold war in a, in a sense between the, the, in the in the payments. We'll touch on that in a moment. U.S. versus China. Um, it talks about some of that stuff with Yanis Varoufakis. In a recent interview, really fascinating um, stuff in terms of it being a technological confrontation, perhaps more than a, a military or political one. Um, 
the truckers. This was fascinating for me because it's the first time it came onto my radar. We had not just the people involved in these trucker protests in Canada, but even people donating money to the truckers all of a sudden found themselves locked out of their bank accounts. Yeah. Um, and I, it seems to me that if you do move to cashless, this does just quite obviously become a tool of state repression at yeah. the drop of a hat. Is that a fair assessment or is that just... Yeah, and bear in mind, the reason why it's so powerful is that in a capitalist economy, you can't survive unless you engage in market processes, right? And market processes de facto are monetary. So, so the entire like nervous system of a capitalist economy is the monetary system. Um, so ability to make tweaks to that has incredible um, ability to coerce people, right? So in a way that, you know, if, if I censor a newspaper or something, I can you can still have the propagation of ideas. You know, there's, there's ways around it. But if you say your only way to interact economically is via this system, and we're going to like have tweaks on that. You can you can strangle whole things, right? So there's huge power in in the the payment system in the, in the capitalist in capitalist economies. So um, this is why this, this this ability to potentially freeze people out of systems or only give um, th there's two issues at play. One is a, if if you can't get access to the system for some reason, you don't know how to use it, you lack access to the, the correct means. Um, the other is if you get literally pushed out. You get stopped from using it, right? So this is how you can exert lots of power. So the, the Canadian trucker example was an example of um, those kind of these like anti-vax guys who were, who were doing this pro protest, and then they had their accounts frozen, their, essentially their bank accounts frozen, right? Um, which is a, a long. There's a long history of people using freezing of bank accounts as a way to control stuff, right? You know, Greenpeace has its bank accounts frozen in India, so yeah. and you can sort of you can basically like strangulate people by doing this. Um, but of course, the cash system historically provides this like way to escape that. Yeah, you know. So once once you get rid of that, you essentially have greater strangulation ability in an economy. Um, which of course, there's the crypto world, which now presents itself as being the way you avoid that. Yeah. So does crypto solve this? As I'm so often told, for pretty much every I, I was told about a year ago, every single problem on earth, crypto solves this. Does course, crypto yeah. solve this? <laughs> I mean, it, it provides a a new one new means of potentially getting around some of the stuff yeah i mean you got to separate out the rhetoric of crypto from its reality the rhetoric is very obnoxious right arrogant um kind of delusional but there are some actual elements of the of those systems that can actually be useful um something like bitcoin for example it's not a monetary system it's a system of tradable digital collectibles that are highly volatile right you can move around um, so bitcoin isn't money no, it's what it's a it's a counter trade object. That, that sounds a bit like tech techie, but basically it's an object that has a monetary price that you can then swap for other things with monetary prices, and that's a process that's called counter trade. Um, you can you can do counter trade with anything in the world. So it's an asset. Yeah, but historically counter trade is very hard, right? If I'm trying to you know uh, if if I have like let's say like a this glass or something, it has a monetary price on a market somewhere, and I could try to say, well, I will compare its monetary price to something else's monetary price and from that I can derive an exchange ratio and I can hand you a bunch of glasses in exchange for something, right? Basically, you're paying with its resale price. So it's very similar with crypto. So when you're paying for something with Bitcoin, you're paying with its US dollar retail price via this object. It's just, it's just that it's much easier to counter trade this object than with normal objects like you know, physical objects. It's a highly counter-tradable digital collectible, which actually can be quite useful. So it's very, very volatile. But if I 
for example, do actually need, I've been frozen out of the banking sector and I need some like volatile way to somehow um, engage in exchange, it can be useful. But if you're like a small business owner and you try to use this thing, it's, it's, it's prices fluctuating massively all the time. And if you're a business owner, you don't want to be doing speculation. You, you have a business, right? And you, you don't want to be thinking about how that's, you know, trying to use some speculative digital object as your means of exchange, right? So, so, so Bitcoin isn't the solution then? Worst case well, scenario it, it, for it, some it, activists, it, 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 it provides, might be, but- it provides some types of uh, background stuff. Uh, it, it, in its real form, it has some uses, right? In terms of like, you know, it can be a temporary uh, thing to, to bypass systems. In its ideological fantasy form, it's incredibly destructive, right? Because it basically spreads conservative monetary ideology to young people. Um, that's a sort of separate function of the system. <laughs> so Bitcoin's actual role is to sort of teach 17-year-olds how to think like Margaret Thatcher. Um, that, that's sort of what its actual, its actual political effect is. Um, but and you, do you think that's intentional? No, it's part of its marketing ploy. Because if you if you have a sort of like a featureless digital object, which is what it is, right? And you're trying to create a story for why it's better than the gigantic banking state structure, you have to create a kind of narrative, right? Just to get it to, to get it to compete. And so the narrative that they come upon is to sort of draw heavily upon conservative monetary thought around fantasies of digital gold. So they say, oh, this object is like the antithesis of the normal system. So they'll heavily, heavily buy into conservative monetary theory as a way to promote this speculative object, right? One of the ways to think about it is like, imagine you're, um, I don't know if you watch like WWE wrestling and sure. stuff. And the wrestlers always have a backstory. Not anymore, just to be clear, 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> the wrestlers always have a backstory, right? It's like, you know, I'm the undertaker or whatever. I forget, I don't know who the latest ones are, right? But they always have some sort of backstory, theatrical backstory. And they get in the ring and they fight each other. And you can kind of imagine in the asset markets that all the different assets have their backstory. It's like, you know, I'm a GameStop share. I'm a kind of like weird meme stock, you know, and like, oh, I'm gold. I'm this like, you know, ancient you know, metal. And um, I'm, a, I'm a normal stock, I'm a bond, whatever. And they're all kind of competing on story. And then if you have the Bitcoin system, what it actually is, it's a sort of like a, a numerical object, right? And so like, well, how do you, how do you what, what, is it, what is this backstory? Um, and its backstory actually is kind of like, I'm here to bring down the entire wrestling league. I'm going to, uh, you know, my, my true, my, the, the true person I'm fighting is the whole person who, who, over, who kind of holds the whole system together, right? So the Bitcoin thing is like, I'm going to take down the US dollar. In reality, what it is, is a US dollar price commodity trying to compete against GameStop shares and like gold and stuff like that. But it has to sort of engage in this masquerade that what it's doing is fighting the actual monetary system, right? Um, because what it has to do, it has to attract somebody who might otherwise buy a share to say, you know, rather than spending your a thousand US dollars on buying that, why don't you buy me instead? Right. So, <laughs> so it creates this like crazy fantasy that it's, that it's kind of like competing with the, the dollar system, but really it rides, it's, it's connected and it rides on top of it. So what do you think of El Salvador's uh, shift then in terms of embracing Bitcoin? Well, El Salvador, El Salvador hasn't actually adopted Bitcoin. Um, I have also Salvadorian friends, and the actual number of people who actually use crypto there is incredibly low. Uh, but basically, you had a president who wanted to sort of I gotta, um, appeal to like a, a US libertarians, and he, he was a, did a strategic act where he sort of played into their fantasies. Um, and 
Yeah, but in terms of actual commerce in El Salvador, nobody uses it unless it's in these tiny little tourist enclaves. Like they have a place called Bitcoin Beach, for example, where they'll sort of engage in this sort of, you know, they'll, they'll do it. Um, but even when it does operate there, it's operating according to those counter trade processes that I described. So what will happen if you go into a restaurant is you'll see a fixed US dollar price on the menu, right? Um, you'll say, see, you know, $20 or something. Um, and then the bottle person will do is say, if I was to buy, use $20 to buy Bitcoin, how much would I get, right? And then that's how much Bitcoin you have to hand over to the person to, to uh, get the thing. So you, you, again, you're using a US dollar resale price that will equate to the, the actual price of the, of the meal. Um, and this is how you can engage in the fantasy that what you're doing is using Bitcoin to buy stuff, but you're really using a speculative object's US dollar price to buy the thing. Um, and then you can, that's, that's, you know, it's interesting. So this is a political, in your view, this is a political move by the president of El Salvador to appeal to a certain subsection yeah. of American public yeah, yeah, opinion yeah. and yeah, its political well, it's, class. Think, think about it, you're in, a, you're in a, a country that has no political power geopolitically, you know, you're, you know, why not? You can, you can sort of position yourself as this kind of like international bad boy, um, appeal to a certain political constituency in, in the West. Pretty powerful um, one as well, to yeah, be yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, And actually, it's quite a savvy move. I mean, now Bukele, who did that, has gone on to do some like very heavily authoritarian things. Um, and, but actually, weirdly, his, his Bitcoin stuff is the least popular thing that he's done. Right. He's gone and done this incredibly draconian stuff by like cracking down on the gang culture. But mm. that's actually more popular than his trying to force the citizens to use counter trade objects to engage you know to, to to for like you know everyday transactions so yeah it's a it's a ploy and it's, it's a one way to get a bunch of like people to kind of rock up there he wants to sort of create the fantasy of this you know startup culture and you know i i think it's going to backfire it's backfired quite badly in the bitcoin community actually because now they find themselves associated with essentially a kind of authoritarian figure um, so they're all trying to backtrack away from it now because initially they were like, oh, this is a great victory for the Bitcoin system. And now they're like, oh, damn, we're associated with this, <laughs> a guy who's incarcerated like 5% of the, of, of the country's population. So I think you made a pretty strong argument really against cloud money being the entirety of yeah, yeah. You know, our, our, our engagement with um, money. I mean, it was, we should add, I mean, there's many upsides to using digital yeah. cash. You say that in the book. Um, but you also make the case for having offline money too. But how do we resist uh, the move entirely to a cashless world of, of cloud money? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the sort of meta answer is that the political strategy for me is to very heavily point out you've got to maintain balances of power in a system, right? Because right now with normal progress narratives, you basically have this binary where people say like, well, it's one or the other. It's like an all cash society or an all digital. In reality, with all our systems, we actually have balances of power, right? So you very have to heavily, um, forcefully push this out to say like, hey, even if you like your app, it's important to keep this, this alternative. And this is why I use this um, bicycles versus Uber metaphor because most people, most people are reasonable. They understand this. You know, hey, even if I like Uber, it doesn't mean I want to get rid of the bike, bike system. And one of the things though is that given that we live in a, 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 a corporate capitalist system that's hell-bent on trying to destroy that, you've got to build a, a cultural movement to demand that you have a right to a non-corporate uh, form of payment, offline form of payment. That that hasn't been built yet, right? So right now, most people are kind of like shell-shocked in the sort of state of like you know, Stockholm Syndrome where they're like, oh, well, I guess we have to do this as the future. But actually, I think it's very, um, a cultural movement needs to be built to say, actually, it's totally acceptable 
to demand a non-corporate, um, non-digital form of payment. And it's actually not only that, it's progressive. Like in a world of climate change, in a world of digital burnout, in a world of geopolitical instability, actually you need these offline forms of payment, right? Um, it's short-sighted. It's not future forward to, to imagine that everything is going to be um, digitized, right? And um, so I think that's, that's actually um, how I tend to approach it. In terms of like actual concrete policies, you um, one of the ways that cashless structures get engineered is that you, you know, they shut down branches, the shops stop accepting it. Um, and so you, you have these problems of acceptance of cash and also, you know, a lot of the small businesses can't deposit cash because the banks have closed down branches. So if you can't deposit it, now it becomes a hassle. So this makes, you know, pushes you towards saying we're going we're gonna to refuse it. And then, you know, the customer comes past, sees that the, the shop now refuses it. And they suddenly feel like, oh, well, there's something wrong with cash. And I guess I got I to adapt to that. And, you know, most people are, tend to try to not cause scenes, right? So they just sort of go along with these trends. And so you've got to kind of reverse those processes and sort of fight back against them. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I'm, I'm kind of interested in the metaphor of, of the sort of the, the active transport movement. People who came out and said, hey, we demand, you know, non-auto industry means of transport. We demand that cities be you know, made to have alternatives to that. And that actually had to be built as, as a movement. So that's that's kind of what I'm interested in doing um, with this. Cheers for joining us, yeah. Brett. Really good conversation. Thanks so much. Great to be here.